Can one more time, can we go to the throne of grace and ask God for his help? He is our Azair. He is our helper. Father, help us now to be like that bride who eyes not her garment, but her dear, sweet bridegroom's face. We pray that we might find a deep, deep sweetness and beauty in Jesus Christ, the one whom we long that we might be his forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the big idea for our message is that everything is about God dwelling in the midst of his people. Earlier in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, where the beginning of thinking about the tent of meeting, the furnishings, the holy garments for Aaron and his priests, when that's contemplated, in the word to Moses is to have this voluntary contribution In Exodus 25, verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the big idea, everything is about God dwelling in the midst of his people. And in the book of Revelation, we hear that refrain, and that is that the dwelling place of God is with men. What I want to do with these 56 verses, is look at it in seven many bites, many as in M-I-N-I, small bites, to take these 56 verses, and then to come up, and as we end near the top of the hour, and to bring this into Christological focus, that we do not lose the forest for the trees. We don't want to do that. Tim Challies, in his pictorial introduction to the Bible, says that the whole point of the Bible, everything is terminal in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and therefore, a sermon to be faithful must end there. We want to do that this morning. I want us to see, and we'll take uh, the very headings in the ESV Bible. You might find that there if you don't have one. I think it's very helpful. Uh, If you are able to grab a Bible from the chair in front of you, turn to page 70. Thanks. Really helpful this morning in our time. Want to consider first the altar of incense. You'll notice that there are just two more pieces of furniture, really, in this section, in these two chapters. There's the altar of incense and then the bronze basin. And this message here, final words from Sinai, we're going to end. The the whole word, 40 days, 40 days of the Lord speaking and giving instruction to Moses ends here at the end of chapter 31. And Moses, like the ladies leaving yesterday from the ladies' tea, walking away. What did you get? Some beautiful little candle. I think I saw ladies with a beautiful white flowered candle. It's kind of like a party favor. You can see Moses coming down from the mountain with these two 
tablets of stone. It was like the part, thanks God, that's 40 days on the mountain, all this instruction. And I'm sure he's thinking, how are we ever going to get this all done? How will I remember it all? Because really, Lord, you only left me these two tablets of stone with the 10 words. But he comes down. These are the final words. And we have here in these final two chapters about those 40 days on the mountain, instructions, an altar of incense. And kids, just for a moment, this very table, just about like this, there, just that portion, that high, that was the size of the altar of incense. But it looked like gold. It looked like these sconces on the wall that are bright brass. This was acacia wood, a very tough wood clad with gold cubit wide, a cubit long, and two cubits high. And then there was the bronze basin. And as you think about this altar, and we think about where it is, it's helpful when you read, when you read there in verse 6, he says, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. Actually, it's very helpful if you glance in Hebrews 9, in verse 3, or verse 2, it says, there was a tent, a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. If you were reading in Exodus 30, you might think that this this, uh, altar of incense was right in front of the veil. But it seems that Hebrews 9 actually clarifies or brings into question that it could be beyond the veil. It's hard to tell when you take the two together, taking Exodus 30 and Hebrews 9. But here it is, and you understand that there's no worship, there's no worship without offerings. And sacrificial offerings intrinsically are costly. You'll notice as you look here, the offerings mentioned even in these first 10 verses as we think of the altar of incense. There is naturally incense offering, verse 8. There's a drink offering in verse 9. And there is the sin offering in verse 10. And it really brings out a point as we look and we consider this altar of incense that there's no worship apart from sacrificial offerings. If your idea of coming to church is simply for you to be filled up, actually you've got it reversed. You've got it reversed. Yes. Is there a sense in the Christian life of being filled up with the fullness of God? Yes. That's what Paul prays the end of his prayer in Ephesians 3, 19. But really worship is about being poured out. It's about giving to him who's given everything to us. I want you to notice there's no offerings here without sensory pleasure. 
There is this incense offering. You can imagine the smell as you'll see what it's made of later. We say in Chinese or in Mandarin, it's how when, good smelling. But there were the drink offerings. Some of you know this. There are certain things that you can open up. You can just smell. You can, even if you don't drink it, if it's poured out or you smell it, that's, there's sensory pleasure. And then the sin offerings we've seen in past weeks, that when something was burned as a burnt offering, even a sin offering here, you see that language, the blood of the sin offering in verse 10. That's like an aroma to God. There's sensory pleasure. It doesn't matter. Peace offering, grain offering, Sin offering, drink offering, or incense offering. And notice how atonement, though, in verses 10 and 11 is the focus. The work of priests was this daily giving and receiving and offering of sacrificial offerings. Some of you know that what's so exhausting about life is that everything is over and over again. You, if you could just do one load of laundry, even six, and think that's the last time you'll ever have to do laundry. How often that how awesome that would be. Or you just do like you fix a meal really big. You take a whole day and you meal prep and say, hey, I don't have to cook for like six months. But what's so exhausting here, what's so enduring about the work of the priest was this daily giving, receiving, and offering of the sacrificial offerings. But pictured here by this once a year on the horns of the altar of incense. Do you see that there? You see it right there. Verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. What's pictured, what that anticipates, the shadow that it casts is this anticipation of the once for all offering of our Lord Jesus for the life of his sheep. And if you want to apply this for a moment and get very practical, tomorrow, moms, and we talked about this in Sunday school, when you're tempted to dress your kids down in anger in response to their rebellion, it is applied theology to remember that every single provision to take away the condemning power of your sin and help you deal with the indwelling power of your sin is that Christ, once for all, passed through the heavens, tore through that veil, and made atonement for you, just as surely as Aaron once a year took the blood of the sin offering and wiped it and spilt it on the horns of the altar of incense. Second, I want us to see in verses 11 through 16 in the census tax. This payment of the half shekel as a ransom points to the redemption that we have in our Lord Jesus. You say, what is redemption? Kids, I want to give you a definition. Redemption's a $10 word, but let's bring it down to your level, okay? John Murray says it this way. Redemption is the securing of a hostage by payment of a ransom price. If you're locked up, if we locked you up in the new, beautiful, black, 
fence here, black vinyl fence behind our fellowship hall. We locked you up, and we said it takes $10 to get you out. The ransom price is $10, and we know that any of us then could present $10 to the gatekeeper, and they would release you. That's what ransom is. For God to redeem you in Christ means you are a hostage, a slave to your sin. Do you recognize that? Or do you gloss over and not and disconnect that you need a redeemer? You need someone to ransom you, to rescue you from your sin. Honestly, what is the gospel? The gospel is simply the, it's the message of God on rescue mission. You can honestly define the gospel as rescue. Who's rescue? God's rescue. Rescue of what? Sinners. Rescue by how? Through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could not pay it. No one else could pay it for you but one. And so moms, to get you to make that transition and connect on a day, if you're tempted to deal with your children wrongly, to be reminded that through Jesus Christ, God has taken away the condemning power of your sin, and that is the basis and foundation for him to remove and help you tomorrow with the indwelling power of your sin. And that applies to any area of life, not just moms with little children under feet. I want you to see, though, also as you look at this census tax, it's the same payment that was required for all. And it didn't matter whether they were rich or poor. The half shekel was the required ransom for a single life. Do you know that it doesn't matter? And I want you to think about this. Let's do it this way. You look and you think, I'm so bad, how could God ever save me? I've done this sin again for the 70th time, how could God forgive me again? It's because the payment as modeled here with the half shekel, irrespective of your intelligence, your work ethic, your, your street smarts, your connections, your net worth, your learning, how perfect your life is painted by you today on Facebook or any social media, when we know it's always a lot better than it really is, by the way. You need to know, and kids, you need to know this. If Christ Jesus does not pay your half shekel for your sins, you will die and you will not live forevermore. If you do not come and say to the Lord Jesus, in you alone I trust, in Christ alone my hope is found, you will die in your sins and you will never be able to sing Christ is mine forevermore. Have you heard that so many times that you tune it out? Can I have your eyes for a minute? Can I have your eyes? If every single benefit, if every single accomplishment by the crucified, risen, and exalted King of glory is not credited to you, you will die lost 
separated from God and in the torment of hell forever. It's why Paul would write to the church at Corinth and saying, and he said this, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's move on to the basin of bronze. You might remember last week in chapter 29 that Moses in the consecration of Aaron and his sons into the priesthood, he was to wash them with the water at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And this was the purpose of the basin of bronze. It would probably... I'm not even sure we know how big it was. I would forget, right? There's no size here. We don't know. But it's outside the tent of meeting. Imagine the big seven and a half foot square altar for burning. And then there's the tent of meeting. This bronze basin was between the altar for burning and the entrance to the tent of meeting. It's between those two. And what does it mean? Here's the principle. No unclean, unwashed priest enters the tent of meeting, the dwelling place of God, without washing. I meant to bring my chipped cup, my chipped coffee cup this morning to illustrate this. You know the movie, kids, you know the beauty and the beast. There's a cup that has its, a name. What's its name? Chip, of course, we are all like Chip, broken, chipped by sin, and we're need of cleansing except this one who the writer of the book of Hebrews says was holy, innocent, and undefiled. That's why he was an acceptable sacrifice. And so by the washing of Aaron and his son's feet, symbolizing where they would go, and by the washing of their hands, symbolizing what it is they would do. It's acceptable for them to then enter into that tent of meeting. David asks in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You must be washed. There will be none that will enter heaven who have not washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb as those did in Revelation 7 and verse 14. Let's look at the holy anointing oil. Beyond the washing by the water of the bronze basin, everything and everyone was to be anointed by a special anointing oil. You know, apparently with KFC, there's some secret recipe for their fried chicken. And the recipe here was God's. Interestingly enough, in beginning of verse 22, he gives the recipe And the point is that this was not to be a common anointing oil or a common fragrant incense. It's called, actually it's the same language here, it's the same word in Hebrew. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil or anointing oil of sacredness blended as by the perfumer. It shall be, and then same word, 
a sacred or holy anointing oil or anointing oil of holiness. Everything and everyone associated with the tent of meeting was to be anointed by, it was not to be used for personal use or any use outside of what God has instructed Moses here. And so we have this principle of the common versus the holy, right? The profane versus what is set apart for special use. And even in two weeks when we will have our day of prayer and fasting on June 11th, part of the consideration is what are the men that we believe God has made clear to our churches evident that are to be set apart for this particularly sacred work in these two offices of the diaconate and the eldership that meet the requirements of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy Chapter 3, you'll notice nothing, there's nothing here that's not to be anointed with this anointing oil. Move on with me at the fragrant incense in verse 34 through 38. You'll notice that without the fragrant incense, this altar is void. Kids, I want to ask a question. This is a test question. Who in the New Testament is called, who is called a fragrant offering. Who is called a fragrant offering in the New Testament? Ephesians 5, verse 2. There. I've given you chapter and verse to find it. The Lord Jesus, right? It's like asking, there's this animal in Australia, blah, 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 and everyone says it's a koala bear. So you always think the answer to any question in the Bible is Jesus. In this case, it just happens to Be so. As you think of this fragrant offering, remember, without the fragrant incense, there is no need for the altar. There will be no fragrant offering. And what was true of the anointing oil was true of the fragrant incense. It was so special that it was exclusively for one purpose only. It would have been unacceptable for a woman to come into the courtyard and they're like, wow, that... Like, that, that doesn't smell like, you know, some Calvin Klein scent or so-and-so. Like, that smells like the fragrant incense that we're only supposed to be, that's only supposed to be used on the altar. It wasn't supposed to be used at home. It was for one purpose, for use by the priests on the altar of incense. It was pure and holy. It was Its recipe was God's alone. No personal use. No use. It's perfume. It was part of Israel's authorized worship at the tent of meeting. And like the anointing oil, the price for misuse was to be cut off from the covenant community of God's people. It's very simple. No holiness, no God. And with no God, no holiness. And Peter picks up on this refrain from Leviticus 19, I, the Lord, am holy, so you are to be holy. We should never look down on a brother whose sister who laments their lack of holiness. We ought to pray for each other's growth and the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to chapter 31. I want you to see these names, I realize that I 
inverted. I've got Bezalel in my notes as Belazel. That's like, no, Bezalel or Oholiab and Bezalel. I want you to think about two men representatively. You can only imagine Moses coming down from the mountain and wondering who is, who is skilled enough. If you're like me sometimes, you've got something to do at your house to fix and repair, and you're thinking, how will I ever get this done? Some of you think the answer to fixing anything is to go on YouTube. I have a friend that says, whatever you need to do in the entire world, you can find how to do it on YouTube. Maybe some of you do that. But, you know, Moses didn't have that option. There was no zip recruiter deal. He wasn't, he couldn't go out and put something online looking for skilled artisans for all that needed to be made. But the tent of meeting, the furnishings, even these last two in the altar of incense, in the bronze basin, the holy garments for Aaron and his sons, kind of the chemist types, you know, those that are into the elemental chart that needed to put together the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the ones, the type of people you would have been scared to be in chemistry lab with, you'd think it'd blow up. He's like, where are we going to get these? And while he's still on the mountain, God tells him, he gives them their names, Bezalel. And look what God says. You'll see these verbs, what he's done. And they're all perfect verbs. It's done. It's as though God already had this team lined up for Moses. Moses probably thinking, oh God, how am I going to get all this done and done well? And we learn from this that God's method is people. God's method is people. And so tonight, when we have communion and, and I'm encouraging you as Brother Clint's going to preach from Psalm 19. And then we're going to observe communion. That communion is a communal meal. We do this as brothers and sisters, as blood bought. Not on an island, but as part of a community. And God's method is people. And so you could only imagine before God gives the names in his plan with Bezalel and Aholiab. You can only imagine Moses hearing all that he has to do and make, and then right near the end, God says to him, I've got the men for you. You don't have to do it all by yourself. I've called them by name. I've filled them with my spirit. I've appointed them, and I've given to all able men Ability that you may make all that I've commanded you. In the main I then, in this text, the main I, capital I, is God's I. I have called by name. I have filled them with the Spirit of God. I have appointed with him, verse 6, Oholiab. Do you have ability? Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. We talked about this in Sunday school. You have time. Everyone has the same 24 hours a day. You have treasure. Children, let me say children of GBC, you have things that you can give to the life of our church. 
even if you're five, six years of age. Take what you have, use it, improve it, multiply it. Use it, improve it, multiply it. Take someone alongside you, tell them this is how you do this, model it for them. Now you, watch me do it, and then let them do it, and you give them feedback. Do that. Don't be, those of you who are, are perennial doers, keep moving towards developing others, empowering others. Don't let people spectate all that you do. Well, finally, we come to this section. We call keep, I call it keep my Sabbath. And it's amazing at the end of these 40 days that God ends kind of reflective of the seventh day. He ends on this note of Sabbath. But it makes sense because this final word that he gives to Moses is he said, look, there's a priority. Keep my Sabbaths. He didn't say keep your Sabbaths. He says keep my Sabbaths because my Sabbath is a perpetual sign to you for you and your generations and your offspring that I am at work in you. I'm the one who sanctifies you, verse 13. And because I make you holy, I sanctify you, you keep the Sabbath because it is holy. You don't treat it as common. And the word was so serious that he says to Moses, Repeating what we've already seen in this book, that everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. And he affirms, look, you already have six days to work. Now take this day in remembrance of my refreshing rest and my gift for you. Take this day not only in remembrance that I made this world and everything in it and rested in this delight. Not a rest of inactivity, but a rest of God-centered delight. But also remember this. Remember this tomorrow when you're in the heat of temptation. And on Tuesday, when you fell, when you fall, and you have to pick yourself up like the righteous person described in Proverbs, who gets up seven times, and you have to say, you have to remind yourself of those words in John, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father. You tell yourself, God, I know that you're not done with me, but I want to rest in this reality that you're working in me even when I sleep, even when I'm not conscious of it, even when it's my worst day ever. You're the Lord who sanctifies me. And then verse 18. A beautiful picture of the word of the, of the Lord Isaiah 40, verse 8, that stands forever. It says, he gave to Moses. And I think it's instructive here. 
after all these chapters, seven or eight chapters of instructions over 40 days, summarized kind of the executive summary of what God told them, just two tablets written with the finger of God. Just two tablets. I can see when God, you know how you go and you print something, one-sided, two-sided, God said, hey man, he can only take two of these tablets down the mountain. I'll just do it on both sides. And there they are, the first four. Our relationship with God, the next six, our relationship with one another. And even this last word, this word about the Sabbath was on there from Exodus 20. How do we end with Christ Jesus? What will fill our joy as we sing Christ is mine forever? It's to remember that he is that fragrant offering in Ephesians 5.2. Do you know why you can love your brother and sister beside you? You may do that because he who has removed the condemning power of sin is dealing with the indwelling power of sin and he's given the spirit of his son, the one who gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's given him to us and his spirit in us. And so when he says, walk in love in that same fragrant way, we're able. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, he said, I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. But when I did, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. Now watch this. Paul saying, I left Troas, but because of the fragrance of Christ that knows no boundaries or borders and fills up the room, I don't need to worry. And look what he goes on to say. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere and Paul then is saying even if I felt compelled to go to Macedonia and leave Troas don't worry the aroma of Christ is God's perfect fragrant offering will take care of Troas not only is he our fragrant offering but he's the curator of the bronze basin He's the one who has washed us by his blood. Revelation 7, 14. He's the one that gave Paul the reason to write this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you know when the Bible refers to being sanctified about 80, 90% of the time? It's the idea of being definitely sanctified the moment you were regenerated, the moment you were brought into the kingdom of God. Are you a Christian? It's very, it's legitimate to say you are sanctified, even as it's legitimate to say you are in the process of being sanctified. Both are true and not in contradiction. He's washed you. Did you know that as surely as on that night of his passion, 
he took a basin and towel. And against the disciples' protest, he bent down. And he washed the feet of the disciples. He washes you. He washes you. Are you in Christ? Keep going forward as one who's been cleansed. He's the fragrant offering. He's the curator of the bronze basin. But when you think of that anointing oil, he's the one who gives his spirit without measure. It's neat if you look through the gospel of John, occasionally you'll have John. You'll see this in John 3, 34. You can think of John 3 and think of it the spirit as he speaks to that Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about his, that the spirit like the wind blows where it wishes. He says the spirit is the same way. But in the end of John 3, as he speaks of the Lord Jesus, he says, verse 34, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Did you know that no matter how you hunger or thirst for righteousness, no matter tomorrow you aim to mortify sin, you aim to screw up your courage to talk to your best friend or your neighbor about the gospel and tell them that because I love you, I need to tell you the most important truth you'll ever need to know. Do you know that the Spirit has been given to you without measure? Everything. There's a fourth thing I want us to end here as we think of our passage this morning. We'll end. He's pictured as our great high priest who atoned for our sin once for all. It's just exhausting to think of the day-by-day work by the priests there at the tent of meeting and with the bronze altar and the, the altar of incense. But do you think about this? He's our great high priest who just once he atoned for your sin. Are you Christ? He did it. It's done. It's finished. Once for all. That was once for all. But what's ongoing is in Hebrews 7.25, we're told that he lives always, or he always lives to intercede for us. His work as our great high priest in one sense is finished in his once for all offering as a sacrificial atonement, but it continues as he intercedes for us. You know, as to Peter, he says, but I have prayed for you, he said this. But to us, he says, and we'll end with this. Do you know what? Do you know why you can go to him today? Because he says, I, I'm praying for you.